I want to draw like a little word picture to your, your mind for a moment this morning. Imagine yourself in a canoe going down an African river, and then you look up on the shore and an elephant has come to drink. And then you say to the elephant, come here, get in my canoe with me. It wouldn't take you very long to figure out that you've got a much larger substance than will fit in the canoe. And it won't be long and you'll be over your head in the depths of the river. So it was when I was putting together this message, I began to realize the vastness. How do you preach a message like this? It's like that elephant on the shore. It's like me in a little canoe. And the truth of the matter is, you can't preach it all in one message. In fact, you could preach until Jesus came and you'd never get it all fitted in. But I'll do my best to at least imprint your heart this morning as I minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling The Hope of Eternal Life. The body of Christ at large suffers from what I call an intermittent identity crisis. One moment they know exactly who they are in Christ, and then the next moment, like a chameleon, they change colors. They change colors that do not represent their true identity and colors that do not represent the finished work of Jesus. So I want to ask you this question here. Why do chameleons change color? They change colors for a number of reasons. There are secondary reasons they change colors, and scientists think they've figured out the primary reason they change colors. Let me give you a couple of secondary reasons why they change colors. First of all, it's to blend in with their background. Across the United States today, millions of believers woke up at the very same time. The alarm clock went off, you turned it off. Millions of believers got up and they did that same routine they do every single Sunday morning. They began getting dressed for church about the same time of the day. They left their house at the same time as they always do on Sunday morning. They drove the same distance to the same church. They even sat in the exact same chairs or the same pew as they always sit for the same duration. And then sometime during that service, a minister will walk across that stage and he'll stand behind a pulpit and he will preach to his congregation. And as I was thinking about that, the thought hit me that we get so in this routine of doing things, we don't even realize what we're doing. It's like muscle memory. We just know exactly what to do without even thinking about it. Ministers are ministering this morning to people that are blending in with the background of what I call old-time religion. They say, great-grandpa pastored this church. And when great-grandpa pastored this church, he had a message of do good, get good, do bad, get bad, you better watch out, you better not pout. He had this message of you better obey God, you better obey the Ten Commandments, and I'm all about obedience, believe me, I really am. But the message did not truly bring life. And for decades upon decades, with all of his heart, with all the passion he could muster up, he preached that message. And then he handed the church off to his son, this man who's standing in the pulpit now, grandfather, and for decades he preached the same message that his father preached over and over again. Do good, get good. Do bad, get beaten by God. And obey those Ten Commandments. We could go through them all, but it's not important. 
And he preached with passion, and he preached about avoiding hell. And you better make sure you're saved. You better make sure you don't miss out when Jesus comes. You better not have done anything just before he comes, just before his return, or you just might miss the rapture. You might just miss the boat. Ever heard this message before? It's prevalent, my friends. And then that grandpa handed it off to his son. This is a generational thing. He handed it off to his son, and his son walked across the same old wooden floors. The creeks were in the exact same place that grandpa preached from and daddy preached from. And now it's his turn to preach. And he preached that same old message that's been made obsolete, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. It's been made obsolete. And he preached that same old message. And then he handed the church off to his son, and he followed the tradition of preaching the exact same way that he heard his daddy preach, and you kind of get the picture. These were great men of God from the shadow of my background. And so if they were here today and they were seated on the front row, they would be in my amen corner. Now again, I'm all about preaching the word of God. I'm all about passing it down to your sons. I'm all about that rich heritage. But friends, let me tell you something. There is a word that will keep you in bondage and there is a word that will set you free. I want you to know something. Outside of Sunday morning service here, my ministry doesn't stop. I have to minister to believers that are brokenhearted through the week. I have to minister to believers now that have bruised emotions, dreadlock thinking, unsure of their salvation, and absolutely at times totally hopeless. This is the work we do. Now we would understand that if this was the unsaved, but this is not the unsaved. This is the saved. Friends, let me tell you something. When the gospel of grace begins to drip into our hearts, we discovered that we are not made to live in the shadows of old covenant, in the background of what we call old time religion. We were not made to change colors so that we could blend in with the traditions of men. We were made to live in the light. We were made to live in the substance of Jesus Christ. We were made to live in the new covenant of righteousness by faith. That is our true identity. And this gospel of grace releases the hope of eternal life. So chameleons change colors, number one, to blend in with their background, but they also change colors to hide from their predators. I want to remind you this morning that our predator has been defeated. We sang about it this morning. Our predator, our greatest predator, has already been dealt a death blow. He has been defeated. So why do chameleons change color? Why do Christians change color? It's because they want to hide from their predators. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7-10, through 10, we find these truths. It says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Fear is tormenting. Fear will paralyze you. And the Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear. So where does it come from? Well, it comes from wrong-headed thinking. It comes from wrong programming. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, the Bible says, and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner." but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Watch what he says now. Who hath saved us? 
and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own, watch this now, to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Watch what it says now, who has abolish death. You know, one of the things that people fear the most is death. It's in the top three. One of the things people fear, even believers, they fear death. I have finally got to the point in my life that I just go, so what? I mean, when you get to the point that you realize you do not fear death anymore, you'll get to the point where you realize I am established in grace. And so what? But the Bible says there, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let me say this now, only the true gospel can pull a person out of their hiding place, out of that place where they hide from their predators. Only the gospel of grace can reach down with its hands and pull you out of those shadows, those shadows of old covenant, the shadows of old mentality and logic and wrong-headed thinking. Only the gospel of grace, only the gospel of God's love can pull you out of that. Now, you've seen two reasons why chameleons change colors. Here's the third one. This is the primary one. They change colors to reflect their mood. In other words, when they're angry, they turn a certain color. When they're excited, they turn another color. If they get cold, they turn another color. When they get warm, they turn another color. And when they want a mate, they turn another color. Daddy is not getting red in the face because you and I fail from time to time. He doesn't get mad at us. He doesn't get red in the face. I've seen people so mad. Oh, they just red. It's just like they're holding their breath for five minutes. They're so red in the face. Their ears are going to explode off of their heads. Daddy is not like that. He's not getting red in the face because we trip, we fall, we stumble, we fail. Daddy does not become brighter on the days that we've had a good day. His glow about him, his glory about him doesn't suddenly increase because Mark just had a wonderful day. Look at that. Look at my boy. Oh, I just feel like being brighter. <laughs> Daddy does not turn green because he is sick of us, friends. When you and I come to the realization that we have been, watch this now, made in the image of God and that our daddy is never ever, ever in a bad mood, then you and I will quit trying to blend into the background of old time religion and will stop being motivated by fear. We will be moved by love because what does the Bible say? Perfect love casts out all fear. The hope of eternal life will manifest in us once for all. As I said before, one moment believers know exactly who they are in Christ and the next moment, it's like they change colors. It's like they're a chameleon almost. Let me ask you a question. How can an ocean go from salt water to fresh water in a moment? Pretty hard to do, isn't it? Yet the book of James says in chapter 3 and verse 11, can both fresh water and bitter water flow from the same spring? So then why does a Christian feel like fresh water one moment and then bitter water the next? It's because they do not have a true revelation of the finished work of Christ. That is, his cross 
was sufficient payment to reconcile man back to his father apart from our contribution. That means I wasn't there to help him in the beginning and I'm not there to hinder him in the end or along the journey. It was an eternal redemption that came by the eternal spirit and released in us an eternal inheritance. Thank you, Jesus. In Exodus chapter 14, we see this story. The Israelites have been set free from bondage and they are on their journey and they suddenly approach the Red Sea. Now, normally that wouldn't be such a big problem, but when you have the Egyptian army crowding in on you, it's a problem. You can't run this way because that's the way the Egyptians are coming. You can't go this way because there's a river that stands in the way, a very deep river in the section they were looking to cross. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? You ever feel like you've painted yourself in a corner and there's just no hope and there's no way out of that corner? I've come by today to tell you there is. There is. We have a hope that the world doesn't have. We have a hope that goes beyond what we could even think or imagine. So here they are. The Egyptians are closing in on them. And Moses starts crying out to the Lord. And the Lord says, why are you crying out to me, Moses? And he tells Moses, he says, I want you to take that staff in your hand. And he said, I want you to raise your staff. And he said, I want you to stretch out your other hand over the river. And the Bible says that Moses did that. He did that all night long. And the Bible says there was an eastern wind that began to blow and it pushed back the towering walls of water, one to the left and one to the right. And the Bible says it dried up the ground so that the Israelites could walk across on dry ground. It would just be too messy, your feet getting stuck in the mud. So God is a gracious God, a considerate God. And so all two million, three million, whatever it was, Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And then the Bible says the Egyptians pursued them. And the Egyptians came with their chariots and thousands of men, foot soldiers. And the Bible says they decided to cross the Red Sea there too. And Moses lifted his, his staff again and that Red Sea the waters began to fall in on him. Now, all of them couldn't have been in the Red Sea. You couldn't have had hundreds of thousands in there at one time. But the Bible literally says that the Lord reached out and pulled them into the sea and drowned them. And so now they reach the other side and Miriam looks back. That's Moses' sister. She looks back and she goes, Whoa. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, we've seen the Charlton Heston movie. I'm sure we've seen that Ten Commandments movie. I mean, that would pale in comparison to what this really looked like and the roar and the sound of what this looked like. God was defeating their enemy. It's a type and shadow of God defeating Satan, God defeating our enemy later as Jesus would come to the cross. That's all it is, that they passed through the Red Sea, the Israelites, they passed through the blood of Jesus. They were his chosen people. That's why they lived. But the Egyptians were not the chosen people of God trying to pass through that same blood without Jesus, without the Father, and the sea came in on them. And then Miriam goes, wow, that was awesome. She said, does anybody have a tambourine? I've got a song that's cooking in my heart. And somebody gave her a tambourine and she started shaking that tambourine as she began to sing that the Lord has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea and has drowned them into the see. Can you see the picture? Why would these stories be in the Bible? They're for our edification. They're for our benefit so that we can look back and go, wow, look at that. Look at that imagery. Father, that was you. Jesus, that was even you back then. 
taking care of my enemies, taking care of all my sin, so I wouldn't have to worry about that. I passed through the blood of Jesus. You have put me on the other side. I'm on dry ground. I can look back now and know I watched my enemies get defeated right in front of my eyes. I've got good reason to sing a song. And that song went on for a long time. Hallelujah. It's a type and shadow of the enemy being defeated and us being baptized into the blood of Jesus Christ. We see now, once they get to the other side, the Israelites and Moses, we pick up in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. Now they have reached the other side. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. What does all that mean? It says that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. Now watch what it says. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. That is a picture of Jesus being in the grave for three days. For three days they looked for him. For three days they had no living water whatsoever. For three days they were in like this desert. They didn't have anything to drink. For three days they traveled. When Jesus was already hidden inside the rock, it wouldn't be until Moses would come and strike that rock that it would speak of that Christ who was that rock in the desert. But for three days, the Bible says, they traveled in the desert without finding water. But when they came to Marah, which means bitter. It's bitter because believers are trying to drink of Jesus from an old covenant cup. Today, if Jesus is bitter, it's because you are trying to drink him out of an old covenant cup. That's all there is to it. Jesus himself isn't bitter. It's the cup. It's the cup that makes him bitter. That's all. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? I think the better question would have been, who are we to drink? That's what we say today. Who are we to drink? And I'll tell you who that is. It is Christ. We are to take his body in. We are to drink his blood. That's who we are to drink. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. It says, when he threw him into the water, the water became fit to drink. All that picture of that piece of wood was, was simply a type and shadow of the cross. That's all it was. What made the difference in the water that day? The water was bitter when they got there. The water was called Marah when they got there. There's nothing that could have changed that water. You can't just throw a stick in a water and make it sweet water. You can't just pick up anything and throw it in there and make it sweet. Maybe thousands of gallons of splendor or something. I don't know. But you just can't throw a stick in the water and make it go from bitter to sweet. Well, what is that a picture of? It's a picture again of Christ. It's a picture of his cross. What made the difference in the water that day was the wood. What changed the water from bitter to sweet? What made the water fit to drink? It was the piece of wood. What determines whether a believer lives a bitter or sweet life in Christ? It is the cross. It is being able to see that Jesus bore all of our sins on an old wooden cross and that with his sacrifice, he has made us sweet water in the mouth of his father forever. And he has quenched our own spirits with what the Bible calls living water. You and I would have reason to be concerned if there was only one scripture, 
one scripture in the entire Bible that guaranteed believers the hope of eternal life. I think I would be a little concerned, but there's not. The Bible resonates with scriptures of eternal life and everlasting life. You say, is there one? No, there's more. Is there two? There's more. Is there five? No, more. Is there 10? More. 20? More. 30? More. There are dozens and dozens of scriptures that speak of eternal life or everlasting life. And then you have supporting scriptures that don't actually use the words eternal or everlasting, but they mean the same thing. How about this one? He has separated my sins as far as the east is from the west. He has taken my sins and he has cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again, just like he drowned the Egyptian army. How about this one? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, my sins and lawless deeds he will remember no more. Are you seeing the theme? Sins separated as far as the east is from the west. Sins cast into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. My sins he remembers no more. Friends, let me tell you something. If you stood before Jesus today, if you stood before the Father today in a courtroom, he would literally have to say, I do not see your sins. I do not see any charges against you. You are totally innocent. I remember your sins no more. I have separated them as far as the east is from the west. I have cast them into the sea. They have been drowned with the Egyptians. You are an innocent man. Oh, praise his name. I love it. And then how about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14? The Bible says, For by one sacrifice, He, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If God has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west, and if God has cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, and if God remembers our sin no more, then we have no reason to blend in with the background of old-time religion or to hide from predators. Those Egyptians have been dealt a death blow by Jesus on his cross. With these truths, we begin to reign. We begin to reign in this life and our hearts release the hope of eternal life. The hope I'm talking about comes from the Greek word elpis. Now, Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this word, hope, as an expectation of good, a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. That is biblical hope. And that is exactly the way the lexicon defines it. Out of all the things you could hope for in life, you mean that word right there is defined by the lexicon as a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation? That's exactly what I'm saying. I didn't make it up, I looked it up. It's exactly what it says. So we have this confidence when we see this word hope, this word el peace in the New Testament, that God is saying, this is the kind of hope I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a wishing well. I'm talking about a hope that goes much deeper than some sort of man-made well. Friends, just as much as the Bible declares there to be one gospel, there is also one salvation. It is through Jesus Christ, and it is an eternal salvation. This salvation is eternal because it comes from an eternal God. Everything our daddy touches, he leaves the imprint of eternity on it. Our salvation is not based upon our faithfulness. Our salvation is based upon his faithfulness. Here's the way my father said it to me yesterday. My hope of eternal life is at rest in the seedbed of my father's faithfulness to his promises. 
He has anchored me to Jesus by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Faith in the colossal truth that Jesus shed his blood once for all on an old wooden cross and by placing my faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, guess what he did? He took away my sins. He gave me, watch this, an unchangeable nature. How did he give me an unchangeable nature? Because I'm made in his image and that's exactly what he has. The Bible says I have the nature of Christ and the nature of Christ is an unchangeable nature and he has given me an unchangeable nature and dispensed in me the joy, the joy and the confidence expectation of eternal salvation. In Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 20 we find these words. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make, watch what it says now, the unchanging nature of his purpose. Did you see those words again? The unchanging nature of his purpose, very clear to the heirs. Heirs comes from the word inheritance. That'll be very important in just a moment. But he says he wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Now let me say this. It says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature. I love that. Because again, if we are made in the image of daddy, and he has an unchanging nature, even Malachi declares that. It says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, if that was true under the old covenant, how much truer is that under the new covenant? It was just as true. They didn't have the revelation like we have now because we get to look back and see the written Bible. They had a, a five book Torah. That was it. And not much more. It goes on to say, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, there's that word again, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us that we may be greatly encouraged. Let me say a couple things about this. It says, so God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled Normally, when you think of fleeing, you think about running from something. But friends, I want you to know something. This is not a running from. This is a running to. You see, the old covenant was always about running from. Don't do this. Run from it. Don't do that. I mean, even in the, in the book of Psalms, it tells you to run from the adulterous woman. Run from her. It's always about running from. But under the new covenant, under this covenant of grace, it is always about a running to. We're not running from our enemies. Our enemies have been defeated. We're not running from what scares us. We're no longer walking in fear. We're walking in love. We're walking in peace. We're walking in a sound mind. Under the old covenant, the worshiper was always running from something. Under the new covenant, the worshiper runs to. The Bible says that we can boldly come to the throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And then it says that we get to take hold of the hope. 
I love that word because it's El Peace again. It means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Oh, friend, that's the kind of hope that Daddy says, I've deposited this kind of hope inside of you. Awaken, arise to this understanding. See what I put inside of you. See how powerful, see how encompassing this hope is. This hope is like it has arms. It has hands to wrap itself around you and hug you and whisper in your ear that you have an eternal salvation. So be joyful about it. Be confident about it. And the Bible says he does it. He sets it before us that we might be greatly encouraged. You see, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't change your destination. You get to go to heaven if you're a believer of Christ. You get to go to heaven. He's made room for you. But I want heaven to manifest here. I want to walk in joy here. I want to walk in confidence here. I don't want to be afraid of stuff here. I don't want to feel like I'm painted in a corner here. I want the freedom to worship my Father. I want the freedom to express His goodness to people everywhere I go. And then the Bible continues by saying this. It says, we have this hope. There's that word El Peace again. It means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. We have this hope, it says, as an anchor. Watch what it says. For the soul, firm and secure. Listen, there is no chain that could hold us bound with this kind of hope that we have. Every fetter is destroyed. Every chain is broken. Every rope is unraveled. It cannot hold us into bondage because we have a hope that destroys all those things that would hold us down. So the Bible says we have this hope, this El Peace, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Watch what it says. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of Salem. He's the king of righteousness, the Bible says. That's what his name means. And so we clearly see this is talking about Jesus, and it says he has become a priest forever. That means, as we've said before, that priest has sat down. It is a finished work. He is seated at the right hand of his father, and we are seated in Christ, the hope of glory. Let me tell you something about an anchor. An anchor connects a vessel to a bed of a body of water to prevent that vessel from drifting or from washing onto the shore by the wind or the current that would come along. And the Bible declares that God has given us a hope as an anchor for our soul. This is what anchors you. If you're not anchored, you're going to be here one day, just like the book of James talks about, that you're tossed to and fro. You're here one day because of what you've heard, and it's pumped you up a little bit, but then the next day, the winds of doctrine have blown you over here and is trying to shipwreck you. I'm telling you, when this hope, this hope of eternal salvation begins to arise and awaken in our hearts, the Bible says it becomes the anchor for our soul. And of course, that anchor we know is Christ. It's always been about Jesus. It's never been about you. It's never been about anything else. It's always been about Christ. He is that anchor, that anchor that holds firm and secure. And he's none other than Jesus. And he's more than an inanimate object. He is a living anchor and he is a living hope. We see this truth in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, praise be to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, in his great mercy, 
Meditate on that for a little bit. He has given us a new birth into a living hope. There's that word El Peace again. It means a joyful, confident expectation of eternal salvation. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or another way to say it is in through the believing and through the receiving that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected from the dead. And when we believe that, he says, I'm going to deposit in you a living hope. And I like what he says about it. He says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and can never fade. Even in spite that many believers choose to blend in with the background of old covenant teaching, even in spite that many believers are tormented by the fear of predators, the Lord says there, he says, your inheritance, regardless of what you believe, it's going to trouble you now. It's going to mess with you now. But I've come by today to tell you it will not change your inheritance because you have an inheritance. The Bible says that can never perish. It can never spoil and it can never fade. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And here's why the Bible says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. If you were the one who had to carry it with you, we lose stuff all the time. But the Bible says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded or sealed if you want to, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, I don't know how we can make it more plain, really pertaining to the hope chest that you and I possess inside of us, it is the confident and joyful expectation of eternal salvation, or another way to say it, it is the hope of eternal life. In Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see these words. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Is the Apostle Paul putting us back under the law of do's and don'ts? No, he's not. He's telling us this is what true grace looks like. True grace keeps us in subject to rulers and authorities. True grace is obedient. True grace is ready to do whatever is good. True grace doesn't go around slandering people. It's peaceable, it's considerate, and it's always gentle towards everyone. That's what grace looks like. It's okay to want to be considerate. It's okay to want to be gentle because this is how we express the Father's grace. How else would they know grace lives on the inside of us if we're not considerate, if we're not gentle, if we're not peaceable? If we go around slandering people, that doesn't look like grace. That's like being a chameleon. We've changed somehow. We've changed colors. It's not the heart of daddy. Daddy says, listen, son, listen, you're coming to heaven regardless because your inheritance is locked up in heaven. I've got it locked here. I'll reveal it to you someday. Yes, you're going to get it. But son, I want you to bring others with you. Daughter, I want you to bring others with you. And the only way they're going to see that is if my grace, my joyful, confident expectation of eternal life is flowing through you. That's why we do it. And then it says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, come on, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, yes you, and envy, yes me, being hated and hating one another. Now listen, 
We all walked through this. We were foolish. We made foolish decisions. Yes, we were disobedient from parents on up, right? We were deceived. We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in this malice. We wanted to do harm at times. We wanted to do eye for eye, tooth for tooth at times. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. I want to tell you something. Grace has this restraining ability. Uh, there are times that I can sense inside of me, I want to say something. I want to do something. Believe me, I'm witty enough and been down enough roads that I wouldn't know what to say in those situations, but I know it's going to be destructive. I know it's not going to show God's grace. I know it's not going to showcase eternal life, and it's not going to be an attractant to pull them to Christ. So there's this restraining power that goes, oh Lord, let me do it this one time. No, son, don't do it. It says we live like this at one time. Now, normally I don't like the word but, but I've grown to like it when I see it in the Bible because it's a conjunction. And the word but, as I've said before, literally means let's go beyond what has just been said. So we looked at that long resume of how we used to act and how we used to be. Then the word but comes up and it says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved you. He saved you. He saved me. Why? By his rich mercy, he saved us. Not because of the things we had done, but because he's merciful. He saw all that long laundry list of malice and slander and disobedience and whatever else. And he says, you know what? My mercy triumphs judgment. I'm going to dispense my mercy. I'm going to dispense my love. I'm going to dispense this grace over you. Yes, you don't deserve it. Not one ounce of it. But that's what love looks like. Just like I told you, this is the way you are to act. Be generous. Be kind. Be compassionate. I told you to act like that because I wanted to show you this is the way I act. And you're made in my image. And you're made in my likeness. So go ahead and act like me. It's okay, all right? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Watch these words. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Generously. It means gushing. It means it came out like a fire hose. You wanted a little drink of water, but it was like a fire hose was stuck in your mouth. He generously poured this love out on us. That's the way God is. Everything he does, he oversupplies. He's generous. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, watch this now, having been justified by his grace. That means declared righteous by his grace. That means made innocence by his grace. We might become, here's that word again, heirs, having the hope, el peace. That means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal life. He says, you get that, he says, because I'm generous. Now, according to verse 7, the one we just read there, believers inherit the hope of eternal life. Another way to say it is we are the beneficiaries of a joyful and confident expectation of eternal life, perpetual life, everlasting life, endless life, continuous life, permanent life, forever life, and eternal life. I mean, they're synonyms, but they all mean the same thing. Eternal, sometimes we can't put our arms around. We understand forever better. We understand continuous. We understand endless. We understand permanent better. 
Oh, friends, under the old covenant, life consisted of the external. Listen to me carefully. I want to say this. I want this to drop into your heart this morning. Under the old covenant, life consisted of the external and not the internal or the eternal. It was all external and it was all temporal. That is why Jesus, the author of life, came. He came to give us life and life more abundantly, according to John 10.10. He said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. What kind of life is that? I'll tell you what kind of life it is. It's eternal life. There is no other kind of life. Jesus doesn't have any other kind of life. What he gives is eternal. He doesn't take it back. He has a strict no refund policy, okay? He does. A person could not inherit eternal life until provision for eternal redemption had been made. The Bible says that Jesus obtained eternal redemption for us through the eternal spirit so that we could receive the promised eternal inheritance. We find this truth in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Please make note of the external objects, if you will, and the external actions, those regulations. The sanctuary, the lampstand, the consecrated bread, the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. Now it says, behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in details now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly, okay, into the outer room to carry on their ministry, just like great-grandpa, regularly carrying on that ministry, one right after the other. All they knew was a regulation. This is the way we do it. This is what we do. They were very sincere about what they did, but it was only a type of shadow. It was an external thing of an eternal being that would come and live on the inside of us. Now watch this now. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was shown by this, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered, look at those words, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. How would you like to go around from this time forward and never have a clear conscience? Never be at peace. Always feeling guilty. Always feeling dirty. Always feeling distant. How would that feel? You would feel like you have absolutely no hope. There's no way you would believe this LPs. See, the LPs came so that we would not feel that way. The LPs came so that we could have a joyful and confident expectation of the internal and the eternal, not the external stuff that was going on back here. It says it was not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. Look at the words, external regulations. Not a joyful, confident expectation of eternal salvation. External regulations. And so many people are going through the external 
regulations. That's what law does. That's what rules do. That's what old covenant does. It forces you to go back into obeying a set of external regulations. And Jesus came. He didn't hang on an old wooden cross so that we would have to keep doing that. If he wanted us to keep doing that, there would have been no purpose for him to come and die on that cross. It says external regulations applying until the time of a new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. In other words, he didn't have to walk through that same tabernacle. He walked through a greater tabernacle. He was displaying, this is not about external for me. This is about internal. This is about eternal. He said, I'm going to go through a more perfect tabernacle and it's not made with human hands. It's not external. It's eternal. And that is to say, it is not a part of this creation. The Bible says he did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. My closing scriptures. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. They perfectly summarize everything that we've just talked about when it talked about hope, when it talked about eternal redemption, when it talked about being made right in daddy's eyes, when it talks about this confidence that we get when we realize that we have the finished work of Jesus working on the inside of us. You pick it up in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified, remember that word means declared innocence. It is the Greek word dekaiao. It means totally righteous. Therefore, since we have been justified through what? Faith. Not works, not actions, not laws, faith. Therefore, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace. Look at faith. Faith, righteousness, justification, grace. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Watch what it says now. And we rejoice in the hope. That is El Peace. That is a confident and joyful expectation of eternal salvation. It says, and we rejoice in that kind of hope. I'm rejoicing because my heart and my eyes and everything about me is fixated on what Jesus did for me, what I received through that eternal redemption. And he says right there, you have a hope and El peace of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character. There it is again, hope. It is the word El peace. It is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And then he has one more thought, and he says, and hope. Do you see how many times in these five verses he's used it three times? He is driving home the fact that, yes, you, me, we, us, we have this hope on the inside of us, this joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. And he says, and that kind of hope, that kind of biblical hope, he says, here's what it does. It does not put us to shame. You will never ever stand before the Father and he'll say, I'm ashamed of you. You make my face turn green. You make my face turn red. My glory just went out. He will never ever look at you and ever say that because he says right there, and hope, the hope that he 
he gave us. It's not the hope that I mustered up myself. It's the hope that he gave us. And hope does not put us to shame because why? Because God's love has been poured out. That word poured out there literally means gushing. It came gushing like the fire hose again. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Oh, what wonderful words there. Why doesn't hope disappoint us? Because this hope is the hope called El Peace, a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Friends, the wonderful news that reaches out to us from the scripture are these. We don't have to change colors so that we can blend in with the background of every wind and doctrine that comes along. We no longer have to fear predators. Our predators, our enemies, have been defeated. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered hell. Jesus conquered the grave. And then revealed to us that we too are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If the piece of wood that Moses threw into the water made the water fit to drink, then how much more would that old wooden cross driven into the ground make it fit? to drink of that one we call Christ. Friends, I'm going to tell you, just like the scripture says, we have a hope that cannot perish, it cannot spoil, it cannot fade. This hope is given to us by our Father. It is the richest. It is the most powerful. It is the deepest. It is the most loveliest. It is the most precious hope there is. It is El Peace, a joyful and confident expectation of eternal life. Father, I want to thank you this morning that these wonderful truths are beginning to burst in our hearts as we see the scripture all knitted together for our benefit to essentially put a bouquet of flowers in front of us and say, look at what I've given you. This is a gift. These are flowers that never die. I know every flower you cut, every flower you pick will die at some time, but I want you to know the bouquet of love, the bouquet of grace, the bouquet of flowers that God gives you will never perish, never spoil, never fade. That's because it is a joyful and confident expectation of eternal life, and it resides on the inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen.